The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. Happy that you're here. If you're returning to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome back. We took a week off last week. It was the uh, birthday celebration. I had a great time on the East Coast at Raw Nationals. Uh, More on that in just a second. But this is episode 146. We have Dr. Merrill Alpatu, she's a physical therapist and a research assistant professor in pelvic health from the University of Florida. She comes highly recommended from Dr. Derek Miles. Today we're going to talk about stress urinary incontinence or SUI during exercise. So if you've seen people lift, sometimes they leak a little bit of urine. That's what this podcast is about. We talk about assessment, treatment, and much, much more on this week's podcast. This is a good one if you're a woman, if you coach women, or if you have any interest in coaching people in the future, or if you're just an anatomy nerd like myself. Speaking of anatomy nerds, so if you were wondering what is the nerdiest association that you could join if you're into science, anatomy, stuff like that, it's the American Anatomical Association, AAA. Not the AAA that's going to come pick you up when your car breaks down, but (laughs) the American Anatomy Association. I don't really have anything to say about them other than I just recalled the story when I was getting my master's degree in clinical anatomy that we were all members of AAA and uh, shout out to them. Thanks for uh, providing some opportunities when I was studying. And uh, you know, that's your piece of useless information for this week on our podcast. Uh, a few more announcements. So if you listened to last week's podcast, you know that raw nationals has come and went. That was in Daytona beach, Florida. Barlow medicine had an excellent showing, um, had a lot of lifters podium, and uh, really happy with how we did there. It was also really cool to walk around and just people come up to me and say, hey, listen to the podcast a lot, or thank you so much for all the articles that you and your team put out. Um, Really means a lot, so in the future, don't hesitate to say hello, and thanks for all of you who came up and said what's up. Uh, That was fun. And also, finally, again, we have seminars coming up in 2021. That's this year. In August, we'll be in San Antonio. In October, we'll be in Philadelphia. In November, we'll be at Alan Thrall's Gym in Sacramento, California. Link to those uh, seminars are in the description below. So without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast with Dr. Merrill Alpatu. My name is Meryl Alapatu. I'm a physical therapist and a research assistant professor at the University of Florida. University of Florida. See, that's this is the connection. So you're you come highly recommended from Dr. Derek Miles. He was yeah. like, you have to you have to talk to her if you're going to talk about this topic. And luckily, this all worked out. Uh, how did you meet Derek? Just at University of Florida, or, Derek, or what? Derek and I were uh, PT school classmates, and then there was a small group of us that remained in Gainesville after graduation. And so we got to be very good friends. Derek, when he was living in Gainesville, if I, you know, got arrested and he'd be bailed out, (laughs) Derek is probably one of uh, maybe five to five to six people that I know I could call and he would pick up and and vice versa. Of course, if Derek (laughs) was in mess. 
Uh, so you've been, you're still at University of Florida. Are you yep. a professor there? Are you doing research yep. or both? I'm a research okay. assistant professor. So I graduated from PT school in 2008, and then I did a residency in cancer rehab slash pelvic health for a year, a PT residency for a year after graduation. And then I actually joined UF's rehabilitation science PhD program. I did my PhD uh, studying musculoskeletal pain with a focus in female pelvic pain, and then uh, did a postdoctoral fellowship there as well, and then joined the PT department faculty in 2015. So most of my time is spent doing research. I uh, also do some teaching, uh, professional issues, and evidence-based practice. And then, you know, every faculty member has service slash committee task force obligations as well. Sure. So, so you're, you're teaching the, the healthcare professionals how to interpret the research, apply the research, and, mm-hmm. and where things are going. And teaching them how not to get fired and how not to grow <laughs> their clinical affiliations. <laughs> sure. Very cool. Uh, now, and for the, this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, so we have to ask, are, are you training now? You, you're, you're actively engaged in exercise of some sort, I yes. imagine. Yeah. I, actually, I'm, um, I'm eight months postpartum. Uh, oh, congratulations. Pretty active. Thank you. I was pretty active throughout my pregnancy. And then, um, you know, I got my six or eight week clearance. And then I think I ran once. Um, and then I've just kind of sporadically been running and I just last week or two weeks ago went back to the gym, um, to start weightlifting again. The world, world's strongest pelvic floor PhD. That's the, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we try to give titles to everybody. We had like, we had a rheumatologist on here. We're like, hey, you're probably the world's strongest rheumatologist. So yeah. Um, no, very cool. Well, if you couldn't tell by Meryl's background and, uh, you know, what she's interested in today, we're going to talk about pelvic floor, uh, not only pelvic floor anatomy, but specifically how it relates to a condition called stress urinary incontinence during exercise. So if you are a coach, if you are a trainer, if you have uh, female friends that participate in physical activity, you may be aware that um, incontinence, which is involuntary leakage, sometimes occurs in these individuals when they're exercising. And it actually uh, affects men as well, but it's much more common in women. Um, increases with age and maybe even just participation in exercise or athletic, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, situations. Uh, now, just for completeness, there are different types of incontinence, and we're going to specifically focus on stress urinary incontinence. Um, this is typically associated with an increase in intra-abdominal pressure. Um, it's the most common type in younger women. Younger women, it also increases after pregnancy. There are three other types that we typically refer to in the medical field: uh, urgency which is basically the urge to void or go to the bathroom. It's immediately preceded or accompanied with this involuntary leakage. Uh, there's mixed incontinence, which is both stress and urge uh, incontinence, and then overflow. Basically, the bladder doesn't empty all the way, and so you get some involuntary leakage. So just to recap, incontinence is this involuntary leakage of urine. There are many different types. We're going to talk about stress, ur- uh, uh, urinary incontinence, and this occurs very frequently. Um and so instead of just doing a full data review on that, yeah. let's just kind of jump right into this. So what causes this stress urinary incontinence? Like what's the background? How does this happen? So can be caused by a variety of different things. So you mentioned childbirth and, um, you know, just the, uh, the weakening of the pelvic floor muscles. You've, you're growing the fetus on you. 
Um, in addition to the size of the fetus, you've got your amniotic fluid and everything that contributes to that, what, 15 to 25 pound average weight gain that women experience over the, over the course of 10 months. Um, surgery. So any sort of surgery to the pelvic region um, that could affect, could affect the urethra or the pelvic floor muscles could contribute to that as well. Um, age is also seems to be a risk factor. Gender. Women um, tend to report more incontinence than men, although men, um, usually the causes of incontinence are a little bit different, usually related to uh, prostate problems or surgery in that area. Um, Those are sort of the biggest, you know, general, when I think of causes of incontinence. It seems like we're kind of attributing or ascribing SUI to some sort of either weakness or uh, trauma or something damaging the pelvic floor. Would that be fair to say as far as how we currently think about? Okay. Uh, So that kind of begs the question, like if somebody does have SUI, their pelvic floor may not be up to snuff for the activities that they're doing. Is it a harmful situation for them like to continue to do those activities? Is it like indicative that, hey, something's really wrong here and you need to stop? Is that how you kind of think about it? Or it's just more of a something that's happening, we can address it. I don't know how, how you kind of think about SUI. So I sort of think about SUI. I don't like to take an all or nothing approach. You know, I think uh, some people sort of take the approach, oh my gosh, you're leaking. You need to stop that activity and you never need to do it again. And I don't, I don't necessarily have that philosophy. It's okay. You're leaking. What are you doing when you're leaking? What might be the cause of this leaking? How can we modify your activity at this point in time? And if it's a weakness issue, get your pelvic floor muscles um, stronger and then eventually get you to back to that activity that you want to be, um, that you want to be at. Now, when we're talking about people that let's say are power lifters and we're those, those heavy extreme loads there might not be a level of training that you can do with the pelvic floor muscles to prevent, you know, maximal, uh, if you're, if you're squatting 450 pounds or something, I mean, that that might be a lost cause, you know, but for most people, um, strengthening the pelvic floor muscles or training the pelvic floor muscles in the context of the activity in which you're leaking is something that can be addressed. Yeah, before we go too much further down that kind of thing, people were saying pelvic floor muscles, and they're like, I assume that there are muscles down there, but I'm not sure like what they are. And, you know, what, what, uh, so when you're talking about the pelvic floor, uh, how do you explain this to, to the professionals that you, yeah, well, you can do patients or professionals. We do have, I like to consider our audience to be a woke audience. Mm -hmm. They're uh, (laughs) uh, usually kind of, kind of in tune with anatomy and stuff. So what makes up the pelvic floor? How do you, how do you explain this to folks? So the pelvic floor or the muscles of the pelvic floor are a group of muscles that um, support essentially your pelvic organs. So they line the, the, bottom of your pelvis, essentially. Um, They're important for uh, support. So supportive in nature is one of the things they do. The sphincteric function, so they prevent you from leaking urine and leaking your feces unless you are ready to do so. And then they're also important for uh, sexual function as well. So sexual pleasure, satisfaction, um, the ability to... um, um, have an erection or um, an, an orgasm. Yeah. So, so basically, if you have 
notable pelvic floor dysfunction, the muscles, if they're not contracting properly, in addition to this involuntary leakage, you can have involuntary of urine, you can have involuntary leakage of fecal matter, you can have sexual issues. Yeah. 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 It's in general, not, not a good situation. Um, But with this, and we're not necessarily talking about SUI as it pertains to somebody with like global pelvic floor dysfunction, because most of these folks do fine in day-to-day life outside in, you know, outside of the gym, but yeah, our audience and, and a lot of the folks that they train, yeah, they're going heavy. Yeah. They're, they're doing high fatigue, you know, kind of training. And, and, um, this happens not infrequently. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I've, I kind of came across, uh, when I was looking into this issue originally was that it seems like this is more common in more athletic women like this, the, the, the incidence is, is higher in, than in sedentary women. Is that kind of how you understand the, the prevalence or an incidence to kind of shake yeah. out here? And, and, and that's sort of what we expect, right? These any, you know, so stress incontinence is leakage associated with any increase in intra-abdominal pressure. So when you are weightlifting or you are running or jumping or doing activities, you know, like these and you have issues with incontinence, you're probably going to uh, report that your your leakage is worse with activity compared to people who might not be participating in these activities. Yeah. In fact, you could go down the rabbit hole. There's a, there's not a lot of data here just compared to other medical uh, uh, sort of uh, questions that we have. But um, when you do look at the data, you know, one interesting kind of uh, review article on this suggested there was like a three and a half times increased risk of having SUI uh, if you were athletic and pr- regularly participated in sport and, and exercise compared to if you were right. sedentary. Right. And it's like, this is one of those things you're like, wait, are you saying that exercise is harmful? It's like, well, no, it's just that if you're regularly engaged in strenuous physical activity, your intra-abdominal pressure is going to be higher mm-hmm. ter- during spurts than if you're just sitting around, in which case you might not either notice it or might not have it. Um, do you find that the X type of exercise matters, meaning that you see it more in resistance training versus aerobic training, or is it kind of the same across the board? Um, you know, I think that's, I don't know that I can act, me personally, I can accurately answer that question because I don't see patients right now. Sure, sure, yeah, fair uh, enough. But I would say it just, it depends, you know, is this the person that is a power lifter that's been experiencing uh, minor bouts of leakage and now it's getting worse? Or is this your person, your postpartum um, uh, mother coming back to exercise, you know, three months after having a child and she's developed incontinence towards the end of her pregnancy and now it's, um, it's, it's gotten worse as, you know, as time has gone on. Uh, so it really depends what type of activity they're doing, the um, their health history. So what what are they coming in to see you, you know, with? What's their history? And then you know, do they have you know any risk factors for incontinence as well? Sure. So what is like, their age? Previous you know surgeries, previous childbirth, mode of delivery, etc. Right. All of those things that can potentially affect the integrity of the pelvic floor sure. and its function. Um, how about as far as the research and, and your familiarity with the topic, like fatigue and that's that role on like how often it happens. I, I, I would just, again, my background is in family medicine. Mm-hmm. I, I, a substantial amount of that was in women's health, but yeah. as you may guess, 
that may have guessed, uh, we don't spend a lot of time talking about SUI in the female athletic population. We talk mm-hmm. about SUI mostly in the postpartum setting and because that's what we right. tend to see. And so this is more of a self-interest just given, I mean, it's barbell medicine. We got to yeah. <laughs> go down this rabbit hole. Uh, do you, is there, is it more common to experience SUI at like the end of a workout versus the beginning or like as things get harder versus easier? I, I'm just unclear on that. So I don't know that, I don't know that they've, um, anyone's looked at particular time of a workout, but sure. I know that there's been some literature that's looked at, you know, time of the day. And so if the idea is, or the hypothesis is the pelvic floor muscles are not strong enough to withstand the pressure of, even if you're not exercising, coughing, sneezing, laughing, whatever. Um, and, you know, just on the basis of you're more tired at the end of the day, you're more fatigued at the end of the day. Um, I would guess that at the end of the workout, when you're more fatigued and you're doing, you know, maximal um, reps of whatever you're doing, you're probably, and if you're, and, and if you have issues with incontinence, you're probably more likely to leak. And similar yeah. to people that report incontinence later on in the evening or, or daytime as well. Yeah, that that jives with kind of our current thought on, well, just muscular function in general. Mm-hmm. It's like the whole idea is that you get fatigued and that sort of compromises this central drive from the brain to the muscles to like create force. And right. as fatigue increases, you're limited and you're, that becomes increasingly limited. And so if you lack the sort of uh, chutzpah, the, the <laughs> central drive to contract that pelvic floor because of, uh, you know, increasing fatigue, then sure. Uh, it makes sense that maybe it's more pronounced either later mm-hmm. on workouts, later on in the day, or just in general, as you right. become more, more fatigued. So then this is like the, the million dollar question is physical activity, particularly strenuous exercise, harmful to the pelvic floor? Because if we see this, because the, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, that, you know, we're saying that, yeah, increased participation in strenuous physical activity increases the incidence of SUI. Mm-hmm. So is it harmful? Are we messing up the pelvic floor by continuing to do this? I would say my um, my opinion is that you're not messing up the pelvic floor. You could potentially be making the incontinence worse, the symptoms of incontinence worse, um, without some sort of an intervention or plan to address pelvic floor muscle strength. But in terms of um, long-term damage to the pelvic floor muscles with physical activity, um, I don't think we can say that. Yeah. I think that's, again... I, I don't have a PhD in this. I have, uh, you know, a d- education on the fringes, on the margins of this topic and some sort of, and some self-interest in this. But the way I, I kind of conceptualized it to make it make sense to me is that effectively, if you have SUI during strenuous activity, you're outstripping your current pelvic floor's ability to not have any leakage. Mm-hmm. And just because you're having leakage doesn't mean that you're damaging it. It's just you haven't found an entry point that is below that threshold where you don't get any, any right. leakage. And so if the symptoms were causing you great distress and affecting your life in a negative manner, whether that's from a social standpoint, whether it's from, you know, you're less willing to participate in physical activity because this mm-hmm. is maybe embarrassing or whatever, then we need to find an entry point and additional maybe interventions to sort of reduce the odds of you having SUI because it's, negatively affecting your life, but it's not like you're setting yourself back. You're not damaging the thing and and making it harder for you to overcome it. It's just like, well, it's, it's too hard right now. It's too heavy. It's too fatiguing. It's too, you know, whatever for you to not have these symptoms. 
But if it gets to the point where you are, you know, you're leaking while you're lifting and then now all of a sudden you find, okay, now you're also leaking when you laugh or when you cough. And, and now it takes less of that pressure cause these symptoms, then I would say, yeah, that's a problem as well. I'm sorry, if a pro- it's a problem if it bothers you, right? Sure, yeah. I can say, yeah, who would want to leak? But some people, um, you know, we've had patients, you know, patients that have come in and said, I'm fine with just wearing a pad. You know, I, I've got enough going on in my life right now. I don't need yeah. to do, you know, this extra thing. And, you know, ultimately it's up to the individual um, whether or not this is enough of an issue to seek care or do yeah. it differently. Well, I think a lot of that, and uh, this is probably more of an opinion thing than a, a research-based issue. It's, I almost think I don't want to necessarily normalize SUI in a way. Like I don't right. say this is fine. Don't ever worry about it. Don't just go on living your life, but it also doesn't need to have some sort of stigma attached to it. Like there's something wrong with you and like right. seek emergent care. This is right. Know, it's, stop, it's, yeah. It's definitely not what we consider normal, but it's very, very common. And if people want help with it, help exists. And, you know, that, that's, that should definitely be the message that's out there that you don't have to live with this if you don't want to. Well, I appreciate you confirming my bias. That makes me feel (laughs) (laughs) better about what I've been doing. Um, yeah, I guess if it's, and also if it's getting worse, that signals Mm -hmm. to me that maybe something else is at play, either the, the, your particular mechanism or risk factors have, you know, haven't been fully elucidated and there maybe there's right. probably more modifiable targets there than just right. like, yeah, you're lifting in excess of what you can currently tolerate from an SUI perspective. Right. And to, you know, if you're a competitive power lifter, you don't really get a, cho- a choice here because the, the point yeah. of power lifting yeah. is yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier. I mean, it's, it's the, you have, you, you've got to make a choice, right? Do you want to modify what you're doing as a competitive weightlifter and potentially sort of slow your progress to you know, where you should be uh, to focus on training or, or strengthening or healing your pelvic floor. Sure. Do you think, I, yeah, so I guess this kind of delves into a little bit of uh, the treatment sort of arm here. Mm-hmm. Is there a way or what, okay, well, let's just start from the beginning. What sort of treatment options actually exist for SUI in this, in this setting? So best available evidence suggests that um, 8 to 12 maximal contractions of um, pelvic floor contractions is what you should be targeting. And this Uh, is daily? These are, this is like Kegels, I assume is what we're talking about? Yeah, three to four times a week. Okay. So it's not every day. It's, you know, sometimes patients will come in and say, well, I'm doing, you know, 100 Kegels a day and nothing's changing. So why am I even here? Okay, so, you know, it's not, you're not going to sit around and do a thousand or a hundred bicep curls every day, speak right? For your, or, speak for yourself. <laughs> or a hundred squats every single day, right? And sure. so it's sort of the same principle, but if the goal is to um, increase muscle stiffness, increase, you know, cross-sectional area and hypertrophy, then that is, um, that's sort of the recommended best available um training plan. Sure. Yeah. It kind of, if someone said, if we use this sort of squat or biceps curl analogy that they were doing, yeah, I'm doing a hundred curls every day. It's like, well, I I'm curious about the intensity then, because right. if you can actually do that, 
they're not maximal or close to maximal. Can't be. And so with this, it sounds like you're trying to get people to do this. You said eight to 12, 10 to 12 mm-hmm. maximal contractions. And so that should take a significant amount of effort and require a significant amount of rest to like be able to generate that level of exertion again. And if it doesn't, then I, I can, I'm just concerned about, well, how, what's the intensity like? It's probably too low. And you're right. trying to make up for intensity in this case with quantity. And uh, that uh, for this particular case, doesn't seem like that's supported by evidence. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's, people would call that just pelvic floor PT. Is that the kind of the umbrella uh, term? I don't know that I would limit it to physical therapy. I would say that just a pelvic floor muscle strengthening program. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm, I mean, I am a PT and I'll probably get shit for saying this, but you don't have to be a physical therapist to teach someone how to do pelvic floor muscle contractions. Sure. Um, you should have some, if you're, if you're going to teach them to do it outside of, you know, verbal instruction, if you're going to have them, you know, derobe like they would in a medical office, then you should probably have some uh, post entry level training and how to do this. Um, It does not necessarily have to be a PT. There are plenty of other professionals that can provide this training as well. So, and you're okay. So we're talking eight to 12 maximal contractions about four times, three to four times a week. And that just goes on indefinitely or until symptoms subside or there's no change in the, and do you move on from that? Is there a next step? I would or? say, um, you know, till symptoms subside, you know, we're ideally you should see some change in symptoms within two to three, two to four weeks. Right. Okay. Um, if you're seeing no change, uh, well, I guess, you know, the first things first is, are you doing the the pelvic floor muscle contraction properly. So, you know, sometimes patients will come in, I'm doing my hundred kegels a day. Okay. Show me how you do a kegel. That's not a kegel. Right. And so ensuring that you're doing the contraction correctly, and this is where you might engage with a pelvic floor PT or another professional that has, you know, even if it's a consult to make sure that you're doing the exercise correctly, but then it comes down to, okay, are my symptoms decreasing? And if they are, you know, great, maybe then at that point, what part of my workout or what part of this particular exercise uh, am I leaking at? And Mm -hmm. so then, you know, sort of training at that, at that level and just breaking it down a little bit, um, breaking it down by the movement uh, that you're doing that's causing the leakage. Now, right now with pelvic floor muscle contractions, you're basically doing a contraction against gravity, right? It's like doing a bicep curl with nothing in your hand, which um, for many people, that's, that's completely, that's totally fine. Um, This is, you know, anecdotal, of course, uh, but there are vaginal weights that, you know, people could use that, you know, theoretically, this might be for that person that is training at this level that's experiencing some incontinence and just the regular pelvic floor muscle contractions with no resistance um, other than gra- other than gravity is is not gonna is not gonna be enough and so uh, these vaginal weights are another option. I'm not and I'm not talking about you know a string with you know a five pound dumbbell or anything like that. Oh, okay, cool. you've seen those. You've seen those. Um, Gym. It's a dangerous Google search, guys. Don't like yeah. go down that rabbit hole on a core computer. I don't know that anyone's looked at those vaginal weights in particular to see um, if they're more effective than just regular pelvic floor contractions. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those are available as well. You know, the medical grade surgical steel and, you know, all of that. Just give somebody an external resistance to kind of load that, load that further. Yeah. What one thing that we do, uh, particularly in our, 
either non-competitive like cohort. So our client population ranges from high level competitors all the way to like, this is your first time in the gym. So, which is nice because you get to see everything. Um, so for usually for our non-competitive, uh, folks who are experiencing this, especially for the first time, it's very concerning to them because they're Mm -hmm. like, you told me exercise was going to be great for me. And now looks what's, this has never happened or, you know, and it may be something that it's never happened during exercise or activity. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of concerning to them. Um, and so what we, I kind of have people keep a log. I'm like, just, you know, I need to know like at what general intensity or exertion levels is happening, particular movements. And the idea is again, similar to our, we do a lot of stuff on pain and like pain management during physical activity. What's your, what entry point can we get you to? Is it an exercise change? Is it an intent loading change? Is it, you know, anything to kind of find a way like this is the limit where you're currently at and we can kind of go from there the competitive folks we have less options which is if they're actively preparing for a meet and then it's a it's a cost benefit thing it's like well (laughs) if we're going to a meet there's one goal and if this is very concerning maybe we need to shift those goals temporarily Mm -hmm. uh if it doesn't bother you that much that's okay too um and so from a social perspective our thing is like well how do we make this less of a uh, you know, uh, stigmatized condition. And I think, like you said earlier, it's not, we're not normalizing it, but let's sort of, I guess, uh, repulsive response. People are like, yeah. Oh gosh, that's, uh, I don't, I don't like that. It's like, well, look, nobody wants to do it. Right. You know, I, and just like, like for my own thing. So yeah, this happens more in women, but like, I remember I had a really gnarly weight cut for a, for a meet and I don't know what's going on at the, a max deadlift on the third attempt, trying to win the meet. I can't tell you all where my pelvic floor contraction exactly. is relative yeah. to my intra-abdominal right. pressure, but have I had some involuntary leakage of urine and or other things during a max? Sure. It's happened. Okay. Right. <laughs> but no, but as a guy, nobody's like, Oh man, that's the worst. I can't believe you would post that video on Instagram, like, or whatever, like no one's ever, that's not in the comment section. Whereas I think women are disproportionately affected by that sort of response. And so, yeah, I know. I completely agree. So, yeah, so, we, so your, your athletes that you train them, for example, or, you know, people that you're, um, sure. that are, you're a consultant for is incontinence, something that you screen for, or do you ask them about, or is it, they bring it up or it, it's, it, it's a problem later on with training. Uh, so we don't screen for it. Like right off the bat, we don't screen everyone. I just, I get really leery about screening everybody from like, even for like common things, because you could just hammer people with a bunch of questionnaires. Right. Sure. And then they're yeah, like, yeah. okay, well <laughs> I identified this thing that wasn't a problem. And now what do I do? What do now I do with this knowledge? Yeah. <laughs> so as a coach, and, and again, this is not how I started in coaching, but where I've kind of grown into, it's that you're trying to create an environment, a coaching, uh, coach client environment, a relationship where they feel comfortable enough to bring these things up, mm-hmm. uh, and it, without fear of judgment, without fear of like any sort of negative response, and uh, that's been fostering those types of relationships have been useful because people do r- routinely bring this up, and they're like, "What does this mean, and what can we do about it?" Because you know, obviously, then it's concerning. Um, I expect the person who it's not concerning if they're like, yeah, this happens and I'm not too concerned. They just don't bring it up because they're like, I'm, right. I'm fine. I'm fine with it. Uh, if I notice it, I'll usually like if they send me a deadlift video, for example, and I'm like, hey, you know, does that happen all the time? But I'm just more curious as to like, yeah. is this something that they're not bringing up? And if so, if that's true, then I just want to make sure that I'm not ignoring it 
because they're not comfortable bringing it up, for example. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think I don't know what's you could we can we might have a different views on this, but would you actually recommend screening folks just routinely? So every every woman that we get in the door, you would just have because there are validated screening tools. Yeah. There's stuff. I mean there's a single there's a one question. Have you leaked any urine, um, even a small amount, involuntarily over the last three months? And that's yeah. you know, when I'm when I'm um, teaching clinicians and PT students about this. It's add this because they're the patients that are coming in the clinic are getting a bunch of questionnaires already. So this is a single sure. question that you can add to your intake questionnaire. Um, and then you get into, okay, let's investigate this a little bit further. Has this been going on for a long time? Does this happen all the time? Is it with certain activities? And then do you want help with this? Sure, yeah. I mean, Cause like I said before, some people are, are fine. Just where yeah. you have yeah, I kind of like that. I, you know, in, in in the clinic when I was still seeing patients, particularly in residency, um, it would be more of like that'd be on the review of systems kind of kind of thing, you yeah. know. And then, or like if somebody came there with a chief complaint of like involuntary leakage, well, now you're going, you're that you're already kind of keyed up to go down that rabbit hole. But right. if, if somebody like a competitor is like, yeah, I just want my squat, bench, and deadlift to go up, it's like, well, I am not necessarily thinking about your pelvic yeah. floor function at this time. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's that's not a bad you know uh, bad piece of advice, and I think this applies even more so to people who work, who train or coach folks in commercial gym settings because this could be very concerning to them. And so sure. maybe just asking not only if you're having difficulties or you're curious, am I establishing a relationship where people feel comfortable bringing this up? Well, you already asked it in the intake questionnaire. They know that you're like, okay, right. we're talking about this, right. uh, and so that could be useful. And it's a one question thing. I don't. I think that's. And that's I think that's, that's part of normalizing the conversation, right? I mean, if someone's going to, my coach is asking me about this. Okay. Well, if I do start experiencing this, um, maybe this is something that I need to bring up to him or her. Yeah. And just, just as to like reiterate how common this is in like with strenuous physical activity, there was actually a study where they, they made, they took, uh, I think it was 300 or so individuals and, and, and had, Ha, uh, had them do CrossFit. They previously mm-hmm. were sedentary and the other 300 controls who didn't do CrossFit, 50% of them had an episode of SUI. Right. Uh, and so it's like, this is, if you're not seeing this, it's because you're not asking the question or you're exactly. just, or you're just ignoring it. And so uh, again, hopefully everyone listening to this, who's a coach or trainer is also is training both men and women. And so if uh, you're wondering, how do I step my game up? How do I improve? How do I get to the next level as a coach, as a, as a professional? Well, this here's an opportunity. So well, and, yeah. And that question, okay. So there's a difference between asking someone, are you having any urinary problems if <laughs> sure. normal, yeah. Yeah, versus yeah. do you have any involuntary leakage? So it's, it's how you ask the question, right? That's mm-hmm. going to help you identify if there's an issue that might need to be addressed. Yep. And then if they say yes, you say, you know, is this concerning to you? Right. And if, and if yeah. yes, if you feel comfortable, you know, yeah, the, the con- maximal contraction thing, the key, the goggles that could be, if you feel like that's within your scope of practice, you do that. If not, right. you might need to establish a relationship with the PT or pelvic floor specialist in the area. And that would all be, again, that would step your game up rather than just ignoring it and right. pretending that it doesn't exist. Um, I like that. Uh, f- okay. Besides the this pelvic floor strengthening, there is a you know particularly on, on the internet and and in some circles they talk about this like co contraction the idea that when you take your valsalva you're going to try to co contract your pelvic floor at the same time. I guess that's part of the key. Like if you're doing a kegel, like 
well, you're going to kind of be doing that. Um, if people can't get that, like can't figure out like, all right, I'm doing my brace. This is how I brace under a squat or during a deadlift or whatever. Mm-hmm. And get my pelvic floor, like, are there certain cues that you're using? Is this something you try to get people to do or advise people to like work on? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think this is where if like the verbal cues to do a pelvic floor contraction are, you know, ima- imagine you're about to meet the queen and you feel gas is about to escape. Oh, and it's, I've never heard that one, but I like it. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's a, it, it makes, it's a little bit more intuitive than, you know, imagine your vagina is a flower and you're opening and closing the flower, you know, just that doesn't really make less sense. intuitive for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's cause a lot of people, I mean, everyone, I, I think at some point has probably tried to hold back a fart, right? Sure. We so, <laughs> yeah. And so, and so a lot of people it's, it's, uh, yeah, we hope maybe not. Um, but that sort of makes sense. And it's not this huge grand movement to do a pelvic floor muscle contraction. You're probably doing it right now, Jordan. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a relatively small, even though, you know, we're calling it a maximal contraction. It's a relatively small, um, movement that you shouldn't see mm-hmm. any outward movement from, but you know, if someone cannot get it, or, I mean, they literally just, it, they're not feeling like they're able to contract their pelvic floor muscles. This is where you might consider consulting with, um, you know, a pelvic floor physical therapist or another provider that, um, you know, can assess number one, are they actually contracting their pelvic floor? You know, if I'm mm-hmm. kind of visually see them contracting their pelvic floor, if they just cannot get it, hooking them up to, you know, perhaps a biofeedback machine um, that will enable them to see, or they get that feedback that, yeah, okay, that's, that's what it should feel like, or that's what, this is what it should, this is what a maximal contraction should feel like. And this is how it should feel when I'm bracing during these other activities. But at the same time, unless you are doing the pelvic floor muscle contractions with your Valsalva for, with your bracing for the purposes of improving your incontinence, is a pelvic floor muscle contraction going to be the thing that you're thinking of if you are looking to maximize the amount of weight? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So it's just, and so that's why I think sort um, Training the pelvic floor muscles separately, you know, within the context of the movement that you're doing is important in addition to, you know, the regular training that someone's doing um, for that specific uh, exercise or activity. Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea that like strength is specific. The, the, it's right. You know, if, you ha- if I had a lifter who was having this issue, you know, one thing I, I typically tell them to do is like, hey, don't, don't do these things on the couch. We don't, we don't have any couch lifts right. for that we're competing in yet. But right. even if, even if you're doing, if you're doing this at home, just like you're doing a body weight squat and at the yeah. top, do the contraction and then try to maintain that throughout the duration of the lift or grab a broomstick and do the deadlift with the, you know, the idea is you're right. trying to, because the positions that you're in may change the feedback that you're getting and you might that's not be right. able to like, yeah. So that's, that's the idea. And ideally what happens is that this becomes natural, just part of your process. Right. Exactly. Getting ready for a lift. Yeah. And yeah, this is I, where I think, you know, coaches and pelvic floor PTs should really, um, communicate, collaborate more. You know, if someone's going to see a pelvic floor PT coming to see me, I want to know what they're doing with you while they're training and how we can, and how I can enhance that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. The specifics are important. And so I think, cause I've had people uh, that they've already seen a pelvic floor PT and they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. it didn't work. And I'm like, well, you didn't fail physical therapy. It's like somebody said, yeah, I failed exercise. It's like, look, right. there are different ways that we can, we can do this. And so it's like, well, how did you do it exactly? And then like, where are you having symptoms? So let's see if we can make this a little bit more specific to your individual needs and right. see where the, the disconnect is. Uh, okay. Now I am told uh, that there are some, some, uh, medical professionals who after, if somebody has done all this and it's not working, that they actually will do surgery for SUI. Now I'm familiar with surgery for SUI in the context of like postpartum folks with like the urethral hypomobility or like a sphincter issue or whatever. Uh, I'm not as familiar with this for just like activity related SUI, not to say that activity related SUI isn't a big deal. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Do you, is that a, are people doing surgery for this? The, uh, that- there's a sling surgery that, you know, supports the uh, urethra um, that we've seen. Um, and again, it's been a while since I've been in the clinic treating patients. So I'm not sure if there are more, uh, more recent surgeries or newer surgeries for it. But I think, you know, the first line is conservative treatment and then, you know, and then, you know, are there other issues that the person is experiencing as well? So do they have incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, for example? You sure. Know, that might be something to consider as well in terms of whether or not um, the person might consider uh, going to see a surgeon and getting a consult. Yeah, that's an excellent segue. So when should somebody be referred to a specialist? Like just so we can start just from the the PT. We've kind of alluded to this earlier. Like if you don't feel comfortable, if it's outside your scope, if you don't know, if you need to verify a contraction. Um, mm-hmm. But it's been said, not not by us, but it's been said that anybody who's delivered, you know, had a baby, should mm-hmm. automatically auto be auto referred to pelvic floor PT, or like anybody who's got SUI period should be auto referred to pelvic floor PT. What's your take on that? And like, where do you have a general like? line in the sand where you're like, "Mm, above this level, you need to be referred. I think that, um, I think there's a huge lack of education that women receive related to childbirth. I'm going to, and, and I'm, I'm saying this not only, and I, I I can really attest to this, um, as a new mom and just me knowing what resources to seek out because of my background and training, I know that p- other people don't have that privilege and don't have that advantage. So mm-hmm. I think there's a big problem with that. But I think a lot of, I think it'd be really helpful if every pregnant woman at least had a consult with the pelvic floor PT to talk about pelvic floor muscle training, um, particularly because stress incontinence is really, uh, really common after childbirth. And some of that is um, limited by natural history, right? As healing occurs, you get, you get your strength back. Some of that is, is um, time limited by the, uh, the symptoms are limited by as healing um, is taking place. Um, but for people that continue to, you know, have symptoms, there's no reason that, you know, I mean, if, if you see a PT bef- while you're pregnant and four weeks after birth, you're still leaking, six weeks after birth, you're still leaking, you're still having pain with intercourse. I mean, I think those are definite. You need to see a pelvic floor PT. Now, I do think, though, every woman should have access to, if they want, 
to a felt before PT during sure. pregnancy, especially to get the education. Sure. Um, but does everyone need to go see a pelvic floor PT two weeks postpartum to start doing Kegels? No, they can learn how to do pelvic floor muscle contractions or Kegels while they're pregnant, mm-hmm. and they can certainly continue those. But if these issues continue to persist, um, I, I definitely think that um, people should seek out that care. Yeah, that's a similar take. I mean, no, go figure. We agree on those things. It's yeah. a, well, so they, my thought is that, you know, during, around childbirth, mm-hmm. uh, peripartum, women receive the most health care that they're ever going to get in their whole life, unless they right. something else comes up. So ideally, part of that health care would be education on this and, and, and Absolutely. yeah, and that, you know, whether that comes up to the OB or their, you know, family provide their, you know, healthcare professional they see for, for primary care or, or whatever that I don't really care where it comes from, but it should be there. And if it's not, you know, I understand this is not necessarily a point of like a, uh, part of standard practice, although I think it should be, uh, but then if symptoms worsen or don't Mm -hmm. fail to get better, or if additional symptoms start cropping up, like now you're having pain or now you're having leakage during, you know, relatively benign sort of situations like you're coughing and laughing, you know, right. just standing up off the couch and you've never had this before. Well, these are all right. concerning to me. Not like, again, that your pelvic floor is being damaged actively and, you know, this right. is, but like, we should just, we should evaluate further to see what modifiable factors there are. And then, yeah, there's no reason that women can't start doing pelvic floor muscle contractions, you know, after childbirth, but ideally if they had that education beforehand, that would be better instead of, hmm, now I had this baby. I don't really know what I should be doing. Um, and, 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 you know, the care that women receive, obviously they're receiving care, but once the baby's out, a lot of that care and, and attention is directed towards the baby. To the baby, yeah, not, to the baby. Not the mom anymore. And, that's, and so that's why, you know, as much as we can do to educate women, you know, beforehand and let them know, you know, this is what, you might expect in the first few weeks after childbirth and this is what you might expect the questions you might expect at your six week follow-up with your ob if these issues persist though get care from a you know a pelvic floor pt absolutely i think that type of education is totally lacking yeah if i had my if i had my druthers here i well the whole the whole idea from a medical system standpoint with with recommending exercise to people is below average like just oh, yeah we're just missing the health health healthcare field is missing the boat and then and even further when you go to like pregnant individuals peripartum we're doing an even worse job yeah. and it's like oh man but ideally part of the exercise related discussion would be yeah you know you might have in the peripartum context you might have su like incontinence. Here's what that means. Here's what I, we should do about it from a preventative standpoint. Here's the natural course of things. And if it doesn't start to improve, uh, here's our sort of threshold for a referral. And I think that would take a lot of guesswork out of this because oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you've never heard about it, if you've never, no one's ever discussed it with you, you're like, my body's broken. And now I, <laughs> this is yeah. Probably- yeah. Or the, you know, the number of people that have prolapse after childbirth and, you know, no idea that this was even a possibility and sure. no one discussed it with them. And so, you know, it's people suffer for a long time unnecessarily. And I think if we can empower them with information and education, you know, the, the the less burdensome it's going to be across the board on their own lives, on the healthcare system. Um, but yeah, so I think there are definitely some things that, that could change in that space. Opportunities for improvement for the healthcare. Absolutely. 
Okay. Uh, anything else about uh, the pelvic floor or SUI that you want people to know? Like if you had a, if this was, uh, what was that? It was Jerry Springer. He had his like final take on each episode. This is obviously not as controversial as Jerry Springer, but if you had a parting thought, uh, anything else that you want people to know? Yeah. I just, um, you know, what is normal or what is common rather, because we know that stress incontinence and incontinence in general is common does not necessarily mean it's normal. Does not mean that you have to suffer with it just because it is common. Um, there is help out there and, you know, if you need resources, I'm happy to provide those. There are um, databases of, you know, pelvic floor physical therapists or other healthcare providers that specialize in pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, if you're not happy with the care that you're providing or that you are receiving, there are other there are other options and other resources. And so feel empowered to seek those out. I love it. Uh, anything specific for these resources? I'm happy to list, list them in the description. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, you know, full disclosure, I'm on the, I'm on the board of directors of this organization until Monday. Uh, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the director of research for the Academy of Pelvic Health Physical Therapy. Um, but they have a PT locator uh, lists, you know, different conditions that PTs treat. It's a, it's a U.S. based um, database. And then um, Pelvic Guru. Tracy Share is Tracy Share is the the owner of that. She's a PT based in Orlando. Um, they've got a big provider directory, not just PTs, but um, several other healthcare providers as well. Those are probably the two biggest um, and, and most comprehensive resources. Uh, and then anywhere else where people can find you, do you have like a, you have social media? Do you have a YouTube? Yeah. All right. I do not have a YouTube. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and I'm a, I'm a TikTok creeper, I guess I would say. Oh, you're a lurker. I see you're a just lurker. Yeah. That's a, Is that a creeper? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'm, one uh, those, I'm one of those millennials that, you know, early 2020, I'm like, TikTok, that's for those little kids. And then, you know, right. pandemic, I mean, literally in bed every night, I'm just sitting there just laughing my going. ass off at these TikTok videos. I mean, I just. Yes, I consider myself an elder millennial. And so it's like, should I like TikTok? Because I do. And I just am <laughs> unclear whether that's appropriate or not. It's funny. All right. Well, we'll link all that stuff in the description below. Meryl, thank you so much right. for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Derek. That's a wrap on episode 146. That was Dr. Meryl Alpatu. Big shout out to her for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. We've linked to all of her stuff and all the resources that we talked about in the show notes below. Before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, helps grow our audience, and we really appreciate it as we're bringing you all the latest information and nuance in health and fitness. Again, this was the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.